Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Right now, we are continuing on in our short series in the book of Exodus with James Jordan. And here, Jordan's going to be discussing Moses and Pharaoh leading up to the plagues. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening. We do hope that you'll take a look at those links in the show notes to our social media handles, our YouTube channel, and more. And here is James Jordan discussing Moses and Pharaoh. In this lecture, we are concerned with the call of Moses and then Moses' initial encounters with Pharaoh before the plagues. And that's roughly chapters 2 through 7 of the book of Exodus. We'll look at the call of Moses, his initial acts of deliverance, his training, God's call of him at the burning bush, and then we will look at how Moses stood before Pharaoh and the initial arguments over the deliverance of God's people. We've seen the situation in Egypt and the birth of Moses and how he was regarded as a beautiful child, and in the language of the Bible, particularly the early books, that's a sign of a particularly favored person by God. By the way, that obviously does not mean that there's any external sign like that of favor from God, normally speaking. But when the Bible calls attention to the beauty of a particular person, such as David or here Moses, it's doing so to show God's favor. Now let's look in chapter 2 at how Moses acted as a deliverer in Egypt. That's in chapter 2, 11 through 15. It came about in those days when Moses had grown up, he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labor. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he turned this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Now, this is called an act of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews 11, starting in verse 24, says, By faith Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, this indicates that he was exercising true faith, right at this particular time in his life. Similarly, in Acts chapter 7, we're told that, this is starting in verse 22 and following of Acts 7, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. By the way, Moses all along knew who he was, unlike in the movie The Ten Commandments where he thought he was an Egyptian and then learned otherwise. Rather, he always knew he was an Israelite. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he was thinking that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance or salvation through his hand. But they did not understand. So Moses was at this time acting as a deliverer. God had raised him up. He was at the age of 40. He was a man of power in Egypt. He was a lawful civil magistrate as a member of the royal household. And so it was lawful for him to act as an avenger here. But it's also the case that God was raising him up and making an offer to the Jews. 
Well, we read what happens next. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? And he said, Who made you a prince or judge over us? Well, that's the question that's going to be answered. God had made him a prince and a judge over them, but they refused to recognize it. They refused the deliverance that was being offered, and they did not recognize the hand of God in it. And so they rejected Moses as a deliverer, and Moses was afraid, realized that the Hebrews were not going to stand with him, that Pharaoh would take action. And so Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. Well, Moses acted as a deliverer in the land of Egypt, but the Jews rejected him, and thus they endured 40 more years of bondage. That's the meaning of that passage. Well, Moses went to the land of Midian, and there he also acted as a deliverer. We have many pictures here of Moses as Israel's savior and deliverer being raised up by God. It says in verses 16 to 22, The priests of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. Moses means water baby, so to speak. And Moses gives water to the Midianites. Now, the Midianites were related to the Jews. They were descendants of Abraham through Abraham's second wife, Keturah. So Moses is delivering his kin. And since the Jews had rejected his deliverance, he is going to be a deliverer for others for a while. Well, the daughters came to Ruel, their father, and he said, Why have you come back so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us, see the language there, from the hand of the shepherds. And what's more, he even drew water for us and watered the flock. So he said to the daughters, Where is he then? Why is it you've left the man behind and invited him to have something to eat? And Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. And then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Gershom means banished. Ger means sojourner. So, in that Moses was living in a foreign land, he named his son Gershom. So Moses marries a related family member, and this parallels what happened in the life of Jacob. Jacob left the promised land and went to dwell with his relatives, Laban, and married Rachel and Leah. And now we find Moses doing the same thing. He's leaving the people of God and going to dwell with relatives, the Midianites, and he marries a Midianite woman. Well, we have another picture of Moses as a deliverer, and this is what the Jews might have had but didn't have. And so for 40 years, Moses was out helping other people. Well, it came about that the Jews repented. And so the third thing we come to is that the Jews repent and begin to cry out to God, and he takes action. It came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage, and they cried out. Their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So they have cried out to the Lord, and he hears them. It says the Lord heard their groaning. The Lord remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So at this point, God chose to bring that to mind. And God saw the sons of Israel. He considered their position, and God knew them. And knowledge in the Bible often has a strong connotation as in Adam knew his wife Eve. And so the idea that God knows them means that he is determined now to take action to help them. So God is going to act, and God will act to call up Moses. So now we come to the scene at the burning bush. 
And here we have four sections, God's call, God's name, God's miraculous signs, and God's man for the job. Let's look at God's call in chapter 3, 1 to 12. Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. Now, the bush... This is explained in verse 7 where God says, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. The bush represents Israel, and the fire uh, represents the oppression that they're going through. It's God's consuming fire in the midst of that bush, and the manifestation in history of God's purifying fire is the Egyptian oppression. And so God is judging and refining his people, but not consuming them. The bush is not consumed in spite of the fact that it's ablaze with oppression and with the purifying judgments of God. The Jews were under a sentence of death, but by grace they were being preserved. Well, when the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. And, of course, here again we see that the fire here is God's fire, though the historic manifestation of God's judgments was coming through the Egyptians. And that's a confession we always have to make when God brings judgments upon us to see his hand in it and not just the hand of men. Well, Moses said, Here I am. And God said, Stop coming near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Jews always wore sandals on their feet because the ground was cursed in Genesis chapter 3. And you don't want to get the cursed ground on your feet, and to the extent that you do, you always wash your feet. So there's so much about foot washing in the Old Testament. Now the ground has been cleansed by the death of Jesus Christ, and we can go barefoot. We don't need to symbolize that we are estranged from the ground anymore. But this is holy ground, and so he can remove his sandals, and God wants him to do so and be in contact with the holy ground. There's no curse on this ground. And God declared that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Lord said, I've seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I've given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. I am aware of their sufferings, and I'm coming down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, to bring them up to a good and spacious land, to a land that flows with milk and honey. That's always the characteristic of the land of Canaan. It flows with milk and honey. It's a land of perpetual springtime. It's in the spring that the honey flows, and it's in the spring that the milk comes too, generally speaking. So it's a wonderful place to live, a place that abounds with very good food and drink. And it's the place of the Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite. And so the Lord says again, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. I've seen the oppression of the Egyptians, and now I'm going to send you to Pharaoh so that you can bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Well, Moses is a humble man. He's also 80 years old at this point. And he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, and this is the proof, he says, first of all, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it's I who have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So this is Mount Sinai where this takes place, or Mount Horeb. Both names are used and it's the mountain of God. 
And the sign, the proof that Moses' mission is from God is that it will be successful. God will give other signs that he is with Moses, but the major sign of his mission will be that it will be successful. This will be the sign to you that I who have sent you, that you will worship me when you come out of Egypt. Well, that's God's call to Moses, and now God gives him an assurance by giving him his name. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Well, remember in Genesis 32 and verse 29 that Jacob wrestled with God, and God refused to give his name. And so God is the nameless one in the book of Genesis, even though there are words by which he could be called. Essentially, he's nameless. And the Jews knew that. And so when they asked this question, there's sort of a double meaning. What is the name that God has given you? Are you like Jacob? Did God not give you a name? And in that case, maybe we'll know that this really is God. But Moses said, what will I say to them? And God gives the answer, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. There are a number of meanings here, and of course the name of God can never be exhausted in our understanding, but I am who I am basically is a refusal to give a name. I simply am. I'm the self-existent one. I'm not the one that you name. Rather, I'm the one who names you. The same thing happened with Jacob. When Jacob wrestled with the angel, the angel said, I can't give you my name, seeing that it's wonderful. But the angel turned right around and named Jacob and said, from now on, your name is changed to Israel. God does the same thing with Moses here. God says, you cannot name me. You can't put a tag on me. I'm beyond any restrictions like that. You can give me a description. You can have handles for me. But essentially, my name is transcendent, and you can't know it. I simply am. But, Moses, I'll give you a name. I'm going to tell you about yourself, and I'm going to give you a definition and a task to do. So that's what will be happening here. Now, as we'll see, God will expound this name, I am that I am, I'm the one who does things, is essentially what it means in context. In chapter 6, when we get over there, we'll find that God expands on his name and gives some specific aspects to it. But in essence, God's name is too high for man to know. So God says in verse 15 to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever and my memorial name for all generations. So essentially God's name cannot be known, but God gives a name, a description, that is his memorial name, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now by memorial, it means that this is the name by which men remind God of his covenant faithfulness. We go to God and say, Lord, be faithful to us because you made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's the way they argued with God. They remind God by reminding him of his name, of the name he himself has given, the name that says, I will always be faithful. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the New Testament, we do the same thing. The Lord's Supper is our memorial, and we remind God of Jesus' name. We always pray in Jesus' name. And we remind God that Jesus has died, Jesus has paid the penalty, and we're reminding him of his name and calling on him to be faithful to us in spite of our sins. 
Well, God now, having given the name and having given this assurance to Moses, reiterates to him that he's to gather the elders together, tell them that God is concerned on their behalf, that God is going to bring them out. And then he gives a specific message that Moses is to give to Pharaoh. In verse 18, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, so now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, this request to the king of Egypt was one that he could not accede to without tremendous changes. Pharaoh claimed that the Jews were his slaves. If he allowed them to go out and worship God, he was basically saying that they were God's slaves and not his. And if that were true, then Pharaoh could no longer hold them in bondage. And this would force one of two things to happen. Either Pharaoh would have to let them go, so going into the wilderness to worship is equivalent to saying, let us go. Or else Pharaoh and his own people would have to be converted and join with the Hebrews in becoming slaves of the Lord. But the contest is very clear. In ancient world society, as in today's, the state tended to be monolithic, and the Pharaoh was the god who owned the people. If Pharaoh owns the Hebrews, then they owe him service. But if he allows them to go and worship the Lord, then he is saying that they are God's slaves and not his. And once he does that, then he can't keep them in bondage anymore. You see? Let me run that by again. The question is, whose slaves are these people? If they're Pharaoh's slaves, then they don't need to worship the Lord. They can serve Pharaoh and worship Pharaoh's gods. But if Pharaoh allows them to go off and worship the Lord publicly and formally in a three-day journey, then he is by definition relinquishing his claim to the Israelites. He's saying that they are truly God's slaves and not his. And in that case, he has to let them go free politically. Now, the importance of this is that the Exodus is not first and foremost, a political deliverance. God did not say, let my people go that they may create a Christian republic. Rather, he said, let my people go that they may worship me. The first thing is worship. The only true freedom springs from religious freedom. And our forefathers understood that. They came to America not first and foremost to build a Christian republic, but first and foremost so that they might worship without hindrance. And the same thing was true here. It was worship that was the issue. Now, there's one other aspect to it, and we'll comment as we go along. Even here, God did not go to Pharaoh just with a bunch of claims that he didn't back up legally. Rather, the arguments between Moses and Pharaoh, between God and Pharaoh, are all in terms of the law of God and the laws regarding slaves and how slaves are treated. And basically, God's claim is, you have mistreated the Jews as your slaves, and under the law, if you mistreat your slaves, you have to let them go. And that will be the bottom line in the legal foundation for the Exodus. Now, God says in verse 19 to Moses, I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with my miracles, which I'll do in the midst of it. After that, he will let you go. So Pharaoh is not going to be able to accede to this demand. It goes too far. And so God says we'll have to force the issue. 
God also says, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it will come about when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask, and if your Bible says borrow, that's wrong. It means ask as a gift. Shall ask a gift of her neighbor, the woman who lives in her house, etc. She will ask for articles of silver and articles of gold and for clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters, and thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Well, the law of God says in Deuteronomy 15, verse 13, that when you let your slave go free, you're supposed to give him gifts. And the Egyptians owe gifts to the Jews because they have served them. They're only supposed to serve for six years, according to the law. A Hebrew slave can only be kept for six years and then is let go and given gifts. The Jews have been serving for about a 100 years, as we've seen, perhaps a little bit longer, maybe about 107 or so. And so, obviously, they were owed a lot of gifts when they were set free. And God intends for the Egyptians to keep his law. And so he will move in the hearts of the Egyptian people. And as the plagues come, the Egyptians get more and more afraid, and they give more and more gifts and bribes to the Hebrews, hoping that they will go. And in this way, they plunder the Egyptians without force. The Egyptians willingly give them the gifts that are given to slaves when they're set free. Well, now God gives signs to Moses, confirming signs in chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Moses answered and said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. And the Lord said to him, What's in your hand? He said, A staff. He said, Throw it to the ground. Now, this staff represents Moses' work. A staff in the Bible represents the man himself. You hold it in your hand and you stretch out with it as an extension of your own personality. And so rods and staffs often represent men. Throughout the book of Numbers and many other places, the Hebrew word for staff is actually the word that's translated tribe many times because the staff symbolizes the tribe. Over in Numbers chapter 17, the various people who contested with Aaron for the position of high priest each contributed a staff to symbolize himself. And it was Aaron's staff that blossomed and thus was glorified, and in that way God showed that Aaron was to be the high priest. So the staff represents the man and his work, and when Moses throws it to the ground, he is relinquishing his work as a shepherd. That's what's signified here. He's giving up his work as a shepherd. So Moses threw it to the ground, and it became a snake, and Moses fled from it. Now, I understand that to mean that Moses' new job will expose him to satanic opposition. But who will be victorious? The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, which is a sign that Moses will be victorious over the satanic opposition, over the serpent. And that's a sign to Israel. You will throw down the work that you're doing as a slave and you will receive satanic opposition, but you will be victorious. And God says that this is a sign that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. Now, there's another sign. The Lord said to him, Put your hand into your bosom. He put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, Put your hand into your bosom again. He put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out, of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of the flesh. And God said, It will come about when they will not believe you or heed the first sign, that they will believe the witness of the last sign. Now, what does this one mean? Well, healing from leprosy was pretty much an unknown thing in the ancient world, but beyond that, 
The bosom is the place where God's people were carried on the hearts of his leaders. The high priest carried the twelve tribes of Israel on his heart in the breastplate. And in Numbers 11, verse 12, Moses says that he is carrying them in his bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant. Now, putting his hand into his bosom and having it come out leprous means that Israel is leprous with sin. And that's why they're in oppression. They are unclean and they are leprous in unclean Egypt. And Moses is identified with them by putting his hand in there. But God is going to cleanse them of their sin and restore them from the uncleanness of Egypt. And that's the meaning of the sign here. And the Jews, again, they would have understood that, that they were defiled by where they live and they've been living in sin, but God promised to cleanse them. So external satanic opposition and internal corruption of the heart are both going to be dealt with. Then finally, it will be, it says in verse 9, if they don't believe either of these two signs or heed what you say, then take some of the water of the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Of course, later on, the whole Nile will be turned to blood, but this is just a sign to the Jewish elders. And again, it's a picture that God will bring a curse upon Egypt. Well, finally, there's the question about God's man here in verses 10 to 17, a familiar passage where Moses tries to beg off. Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past. Thou hast spoken to thy servant. And I'm still slow of speech and slow of tongue. In other words, you haven't passed any miracles, and I'm still no better able to speak than I was before. The Lord said, Who has made man's mouth? Now go, even I will be with your mouth and teach you what you're to say. And then Moses begs off again. Lord, please send the message by somebody else, by whomever thou wilt. And at this point, Moses is no longer being humble. He's being recalcitrant. And then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses and said, Is not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And he's coming to meet you, and therefore we will use him as a prophet. You speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I'll teach you what you're to do. Okay? He will speak for you to the people, and it shall come about. He will be a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. So that's God's man. God's man is going to be Moses, and he will be assisted by Aaron, who will be his prophet. And that's what happened at the burning bush. The only other event that takes place before Moses arrives in Egypt is a rather curious one that takes place at an inn along the way as they approach Egypt. It's an approach of Egypt that is near the mountain of God. And this story is found for us in verses 22 to 26. God tells him, Thus you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you've refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your firstborn. So we're talking about the firstborn son here and the fact that Israel is God's firstborn son. Now, the firstborn son represents the family. He is sort of the future of the family, not that necessarily the oldest child is any better than any of the rest. But in terms of the symbolism of Scripture, the first child that comes out is older, of course, than the rest. And so he's sort of the captain of the children, at least when they're young. And he signifies in himself the entire family and future of the family. To kill the firstborn is to attack the family unit and therefore all society. And that's the threat that God makes here. Now, immediately we read, it came about at the lodging place on the way, that is on the way to Egypt, 
that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. In context, that's Moses' firstborn son. All right. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and smeared it on his legs. There's nothing here about Moses in the text. And there's nothing about throwing it at Moses' feet. It just says that she made it touch his feet, or we can paraphrase that, she smeared it on his legs. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. And that's spoken to the baby, or to her son, Gershon, who was probably older than a child. So God let him alone, Gershom. And at the time she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Well, what's going on here? We have to understand that the land of Egypt has been defiled by the blood of all those boy babies that were killed 80 years ago. The Nile ran red with their blood. And in just a few months, the Nile will run red again with blood to symbolize the defilement of the land. Now, the land of Egypt then, because of the blood, has called up the avenger of blood. And in the Bible, the avenger of blood is God when he acts to avenge the spilling of blood and the attacks that are made against his people. A blood atonement has to be made in order to divert the avenger of blood. And that's what will happen at Passover. The blood of the Nile calls up the wrath of God and calls up the divine avenger of blood, the angel of death. And the angel of death goes through the land killing all the sons the firstborn sons, just as the Egyptians had killed the firstborn, well, all the sons of Israel for a year or so, 80 years previous. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth, son for son. The only people who are spared are those who have the blood on their doorposts as a substitute, the blood of a substitute. Now, in the Bible, circumcision is a form of sacrifice. And when we remember that, we can get a grasp on what's happening here because this is just like Passover except that instead of a lamb, we have circumcision, and instead of the doorposts of an architectural house, we have the doorposts of the human house. Now, as they come toward Egypt, the avenger of blood meets them, because they're coming into the land where the avenger of blood is going to operate. And the avenger of blood attacks Moses' son because he hasn't been circumcised. But as they draw near, then they need to get him circumcised. And Zipporah, for some reason, Moses is away, and she does it, and she takes the blood and smears it on the boy's legs to make it visible to God, just as the blood was smeared on the doors at the Passover to make it visible to God. And when that happens, the avenger leaves them off. So, a blood atonement is going to be needed. The message here is that the land has been bloodied by all the babies that were killed and all the oppression, and that the avenger of blood is going to pass through the land, and he will kill all the firstborn sons, both of Jew and Egyptian. And the only way to survive is to have blood on the doorpost, to have blood visible to God, the blood of a substitute. Now, that is a message to Israel. This is kind of a prophesied Passover. And it's a message that Moses will carry with him down into Egypt, that God will meet them and God will seek to kill their children unless they have the blood of a substitute made visible. Now there are other curiosities here. She refers to him as a bridegroom of blood, but to go into that would take us too far afield in terms of this overview. Well, Moses meets Aaron and they come to Egypt and they 
speak to the people. And now we move to the second part of this lecture, Moses confronting Pharaoh. Moses' arrival in Egypt is set forth in the end of chapter 4. And we read that he performed the signs in front of the people, and the people believed, and they rejoiced and worshipped God when they found out that he was concerned about them and would take steps to deliver them. Then Moses came and stood before Pharaoh in chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, and remember, Aaron is the one who will do the speaking here. That's already been said. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't acknowledge the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. So, you see, they have picked up on the message that Moses got at the end on the way, that if atonement is not made, then the curse of God is going to fall on everybody, including the Hebrews. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. So then Pharaoh told them that they were to make bricks without straw, without reducing the quota of bricks. And the idea here is to make the work much harder, much more time-consuming, so that there is less time to plot revolution. As we said before, the essence of the argument is this. Who is in charge? Who is the sovereign over the Jews? And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? What he's saying is, I don't acknowledge the Lord as your master. I'm your master. And you're my slaves and not his. And that will be the contest. Contest in terms of slavery. Now, in verses 10 to 23, we begin to see the cost of deliverance. Frequently, when God moves to deliver his people from oppression, uh, first thing that happens is the oppression gets worse. Uh, things tend to get a little bit worse before they get better. And it happens here. And there is a parallel in chapter 5, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, in chapter 5, verse 10, Thus says Pharaoh, and in the first paragraph that we just looked at, it's, Thus says the Lord, let my people go to serve me. And here in this paragraph, it's, Thus says Pharaoh, you go and get straw for yourselves. You go and work. In verse 17, he puts them right against each other. He said, You're lazy, very lazy, therefore you say, Let's go and sacrifice to the Lord. Rather, you go now and work. So there's a contest between the two gods. Who owns them? Who tells them what to do? Who tells them to go and not to go? So the foremen come and they oppress the people much worse by telling them to make bricks without straw. They have to gather their own stubble for straw. And the foremen of the sons of Israel complain and the taskmasters blame it all on Moses. And so in verse 20 it says that when the foremen left Pharaoh's presence they met Moses and Aaron standing to meet them, and they said, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us stink in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why hast thou brought harm to this people? Why dost thou ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he has done harm to this people, and you haven't delivered your people at all. So Moses is impatient with God's timetable. But God is doing this in order to make the people more desperate and in order to make them cry out to him 
and be ready to do what he says. Well, God reassures Moses in chapter 6, verses 1 to 13, by expounding upon his name. It's God's name in which we hope and trust. And God says to Moses, Now you'll see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out. God says, Pharaoh is not just going to let you go, he's going to drive you out. And God spoke further to Moses and said, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. That was the particular name for the Abrahamic covenant. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, they knew the name Lord back in those days. We can read Genesis and see it. But what God says is that at that stage in history, the meaning of the name Lord was not revealed. What God revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the fact that he was almighty. Now what God is going to reveal through Moses is that God keeps covenant. You see, it says in verse 4, I establish my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. And it was God's almighty action to initiate the covenant. But we can't see that God is a God who keeps the covenant until we have a little bit of time. So now we've had four centuries, and now it will be revealed that God is the one who keeps the covenant. With Abraham, God is the one who makes the promises. With Moses, God is the one who fulfills the promises. With Abraham, God is El Shaddai, the almighty God who reaches into history and establishes promises and covenant. With Moses, God is the Lord, the one who keeps the covenant and is faithful. And so, in verses 6, 7, and 8, we have a sevenfold expatiation upon the name Lord. Therefore say to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. There are three things there. And then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. There's four and five. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens. And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So, there are seven promises here, and three times God reiterates his name, I am the Lord, in the midst of them. And what all of these things boil down to is, I am going to keep the promises that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's what it means to have the Lord as your God. The Lord is the one who keeps his promises and is faithful, in spite of the fact that it may take several centuries. Yet, God will be faithful. And that's the meaning of the name Lord. Now, that's to encourage the people, and Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but it didn't encourage them at this point. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let Israel go. But Moses said, Well, the sons of Israel won't listen to me, and how will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. Now, at this point, we have the insertion of a genealogy, and there's a chart that you can look at that gives it. The genealogy starts with Reuben, Simeon, and then Levi. It seems to do that in order to set a context for the Levites, that they were the third born. And once we get to Levi, then we get a bunch of details, and they're just all set out here. It's designed basically, I think, to show relationships, and I have also given the genealogy of Judah because it's also mentioned 
And because there's a marriage between Judah and Levi in Aaron's marriage to Elisheba. And all the relevant names are there on the chart. And I think it's fairly self-explanatory. If you become familiar with that, then you can come to a fairly good understanding of the situation. And the names are also given these people's lives probably to show that they could have lived long enough to cover the entire 215 years that are involved. Well, from chapter 628 over into part of chapter 7, we see God and his prophet. And I think it's important for us to meditate on this for a minute. It came about on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all I'll speak to you. But Moses said, Behold, I'm unskilled in speech. How will Pharaoh listen to me? So we're taking back up where we left off before the genealogy was inserted. I don't really understand why the genealogy is put right here. It seems to have something to do with the fact that Moses is unskilled in speech and God's promise to assist him in his responsibilities. And maybe it's because the Levites are later on going to be set aside as God's priests and that they all will need God's assistance in overcoming their lack of skill in being prophets and priests. Perhaps there's some idea of that here, but I'm not sure. It seems strange that this genealogy is inserted right here where it is. Well, the Lord said to Moses, Look, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Now, that will be important when we look at the plagues, because initially Aaron will speak to Pharaoh, and then it will be a gradual increase until finally God himself is speaking to Pharaoh in the form of Moses. And in that way, God draws nearer and nearer in judgment. So these kind of stages that are set up here are important. And he says, I will make you as God to Pharaoh. So when Moses talks to Pharaoh, it's God talking to Pharaoh. And Aaron will be the prophet. And you will speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron will speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh will not listen to you. And then to sum up that section, we find that Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Remember, Moses was the youngest of the three. Miriam was his older sister and Aaron was older too. Finally, in this lecture, we'll look at Moses standing before Pharaoh again. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, work a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff. This is Aaron's staff. And there are two staffs throughout here. We have to keep them straight. Throw it down before Pharaoh, that it might become a serpent. Now, the word is not serpent. It means dragon or possibly crocodile. This is a completely different word from the word snake that occurred earlier. And, of course, a dragon or crocodile, some type of monster lizard, is a symbol of Egypt, or was regarded as a power in Egypt. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a dragon. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. And there's no idea here of trickery. The idea here is of demonic magic. Each one threw down his staff, and they turned into dragons. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staves. Now, that means that the power of God is greater than the power of Egypt. And the power of the true God is greater than the gods of Egypt, because the magicians represent the gods of Egypt. 
And we will see the magicians defeated and driven out before the Lord. God's judgment will be against the gods of Egypt and against their magical powers. And here it's all signified right at the beginning that they will not stand before the power of God. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them just as the Lord has said. Moses has been called up to be the deliverer. Now Moses has stood before Pharaoh and now we are right at the point where God will begin to confront Pharaoh with his plagues. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.